Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me first this morning, and that's important. We're going to look at a number of passages of Scripture, but uh, first this morning, I want you to look with me at the book of the Revelation, the very last chapter, <clears throat> chapter 22. Before we get there, again, I'd remind you, again, uh, for those of you who stepped in a little after the announcements, that the chapel class this morning will be a presentation by Chris and Donna Sadowitz, their field ministry presentation. They've been with us for a long time, and we have been with them for a long time as they served on the field, and I trust that you'll be encouraged to gather together in the chapel uh, for uh, their field presentation, and we'll get back to our regular ABF programming uh, next week, but, but for today, they will be in the chapel. Pastor Ken's uh, class will not be meeting, and my class will not be meeting. But I told you that we would uh, revisit again the church family hayride. The rain date is for the 21st of October. We encourage you uh, to let us know if you can or even can't make that so we can make the right arrangements. But November 4th, it is a, a church-serving Sunday. <clears throat> it's where the body of believers here goes and assists people in the ministry with various needs they might have in their home and in, and in other places. And if you would like us to be aware of a need that is out there, you need to bring that to our attention. Make sure that, that you write that down and, and nominate someone for some assistance. Uh, there are orange cards at the Welcome Center that you can let us know of those needs and then drop it in the mailbox in, in the mailroom. But we need help too. Uh, we, we know that we'll get requests, but then we need people to fill those requests. We need your help. We're asking that you would gather in the church gymnasium on November 4th at 9 a.m. to offer your services, and that's where we'll give you your assignments and send you to very, various places and, and give you an understanding of what the needs of that family might, might be in the ministry here. But that's a really important day that, that we serve each other. You know, sometimes uh, we, we get so busy with our own personal schedules and lives um, we forget that, that we serve together, but we serve each other as well. So if you can help us minister on that day, or if you know someone who has a need, uh, make sure you, you look at that and, and make sure you show up here at 9 a.m. on Saturday, November 4th. We, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you for that. This morning, in our context of our study in the book of Galatians, and this is necessarily tied to our study in the book of Galatians, we're going to highlight one of those uh, cries of the Reformation, sola scriptura. We're going to ask ourselves, what does that really mean, and, and how does that play into the life of the church today? Make no mistake, in the, in, in the, in the book of Acts, it is clearly declared that salvation comes in Christ alone. But people need to know who that Christ is. They need to understand ministry of that Christ, and that comes from the context of the Scripture. Those five solas of the Reformation historically represented the realities of the church, and we still build on some of those today. And one of those things is the authority of Scripture and getting the gospel right. But when you untether the Scripture from the gospel, there is a danger of getting the gospel wrong and falling into another gospel, and that's what Paul warns of as he writes to the churches of Galatia. The gospel is not a call to a better life nor a solution to all of our problems. It's not an answer to all of the pain of life and the realities that we go through. 
The gospel is about addressing your sin and my sin and revealing a way to God through Christ alone. That's revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. We know that one of the fundamentals of the faith is, is the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, a magisterium that comes from the book that helps us define right and wrong, to separate truth from error, and to be able to somehow understand the difference between that which is right and that which is almost right. I truly believe that the devil's playground in evangelicalism today isn't necessarily that which is right and that which is wrong. It is this perpetual right and almost right that plagues the church. We're going to find even in the book of Galatians, and we've looked at it already, those who were preaching another gospel did not deny that Christ died for sins. They didn't deny that he was buried and rose again. They didn't deny any of that. They just added some things to it, which undermined the very truth of those critical aspects of Scripture. In the context of that Reformation, the whole material cause, the very issue that they were addressing was sola fide, this notion that that faith in Christ or, or salvation comes by faith alone. But you also need to know that the very formal cause of the Reformation was moving the church back to the authority of Scripture and away from the magisterium of the tradition and and the the papacy and, and, and the authority that resided in the church. It was bringing a course correction and reforming the church, saying, hey, listen, all of this has to go back to the Scripture if indeed it's true, if indeed it is inspired, if indeed it is inerrant. So it was a return to the Scripture that gave clarity to the gospel. It, it, it sorted out where the Roman church had made some deep and drastic mistakes and were preaching another gospel. This term sola scriptura literally means it is the norm of norms without norm. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it does in context. It is saying to us there is one norm, there is one standard of measurement for all things, particularly salvation, and it is the norm of all other norms. No no matter what you're considering, we all have to go back to the one norm that sorts out truth and error, right and almost right, and that norm has no other norm. It is the norming norm without norms. It doesn't need the help of the Pope and the church to say, well, this is right to make it right. It is right because God spoke. It is right because God breathed. It is inerrant because it came from God. It is the norming norm without norms. There is nothing that stands above the Scripture when it comes to faith and practice, when it comes to salvation in particular, the, the true cause or, or, or that material cause of the Reformation, than the Scripture. Nothing stands above it. Nothing stands beyond it. It is Scripture alone. It is the norm over all lesser norms. It's the only infallible rule, the only rule that cannot lead you to error, the only infallible rule for faith is the Scripture, period. That's a critical doctrine of the Reformation, and a 
and, and a critical foundation of, of even Baptist theology that rests on the authority of Scripture. And there'd be no one here, I hope at least, love to take it up with you if this is you, but that's another time and place. There's no one here who would question that. But it gets fuzzy in its application. And that's where error is rife. That's where error becomes a huge reality. That's where to take it off of its norm of norms without norm, the one standard above all other standards, and to make it one of many standards, introduces a lot of things that bring confusion. And the cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura. In fact, John Eck, Martin Luther and John Eck had some pretty serious disagreements. John Eck of the Roman church says, the scriptures are not authentic except by the church that gives them their authority. That's blasphemous. The scripture's authority does not come by the church. It comes by God alone. It is the norming norm that has no norm. That was a cry of sola scriptura. That, that was what this was all about. So what does that mean? I'm beginning this morning the book of the Revelation for a reason. It is the last book included in what is called the canon of Scripture, the rule of Scripture. It is the last book ever penned that, that by, by way of time towards that latter end of, of, of the first century that was ever written and included in the Word of God. And at the conclusion of that book, John writes some pretty significant things. Most importantly, he says in verse 18 of Revelation 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, he who has spoken all of the things in this book, says, surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And he concludes, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, I pray. As we look at this most important doctrine, both past and present and even into the future, we would understand what is meant by it. We would be granted the significance of it, that you would find us in fidelity, true to it, and that it might clear up some of the confusion and distraction greater evangelicalism today was to heed this warning of John in the book of the Revelation, but also acknowledge and recognize that the warning is given throughout all of Scripture. What God has spoken, no one can undo. No one can turn away. No one can add. No one can change to it. It's the norm of norms without norms. Father, Teach us what, what that really means in the context of history and according to the testimony of the Word. 
for your glory alone, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Certainly when John closes out this vision that he has received of Christ, he is speaking about adding or taking away from that prophecy in particular contained in this book of the Revelation. That is the primary purpose of that statement, but there is a secondary cause or causality to that statement as well. And as we compare Scripture to Scripture, we will hear it's not the first time it's been used. And in fact, it is used in such clear terms, there can be no doubt, no doubt that the extension of all of this based on this being the final book into the New Testament would be applicable not just to Revelation, but even in a broader context as we compare Scripture to Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to that word, I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commend to you. You can't add or take away. You can't editorialize. It is my word. We also read in Joshua as they were about to enter into that land, and he tells the people, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, and be careful to do all according that is written therein. And then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded these things? And then he says, in light of that, be strong and courageous. In the book of the Revelation, in its immediate context, to change this warning and this prophecy, to change the warnings to the churches in chapter 2 and 3, to change the realities of the eschatological implications that Jesus is coming in to change any of that will be consequentially to add the plagues described in this book. Now, this is really important, just like we talked before. To change it adds the plagues because the truth has not set you free, and you're not free indeed. You are still in your sins to reject all of this truth, to change it in any way. The deliberate falsification and distortion of the truth has eternal consequences. That's what John is saying about this book, and Moses is saying about the Old Testament and all throughout Scripture, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The common theme is God said it, that settles it. But we make too much room in our culture today for I believe it. For in the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you believe, God has spoken and to speak over him, to reinterpret, to deliberately falsify and distort its consequences. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of the prophecy, 
will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Eternal realities described in this book. Why, why is John drawing such a strong conclusion at the book of the Revelation, again, for its context, but, but holistically, both Old and New Testament championing the very words that, that come from, from God through Christ? Why, why is he saying that, that this is critically important? Why is the book so important? The book is so important because who it was who testified to the things in the book, not just Revelation, but both Old and New Testament. And who is he who testified to these things? The book of the Revelation, chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, John says, when I saw him, meaning that this, this vision of Christ, I felt his feet as though dead. And he laid his hand on me, saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last the living one. I died, and, and behold, I live forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those are to take place after this, and your authority. We are adding this based on the whole counsel of Scripture. The authority for all of this is me. It is my testimony that you will record for me, that you must keep. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It reiterates the promise throughout the Old and the New Testament on the imminent return of Christ. All Christians everywhere of all ages believe that Jesus is coming back again. We we debate and dispute the order of that, but nobody doubts that He's coming again based on this text, based on this reality. He said, you can't, you can't erase that. This notion, well, He's not really coming back again. His kingdom is now is against the book. What does it mean then that the kingdom is now? That's another message. But don't discount the book. Jesus is coming again. Oh, and by the way, not on your time frame or mine. Not, not on my eschatological diagram or your eschatological diagram. He is coming when all things are complete, and He's coming to reign for eternity. Based on my testimony, don't change what I have given you, John. Don't alter it. Don't take away. And warn those who are that there are eternal consequences to that. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all, literally meaning all who receive this for, for the saints. It is a transforming grace, a, a viva fide. What does that mean? It is a living grace. Why is living grace important? As John points back to all things that he's revealed to us in the book of the Revelation, because the only way that it is sustainable to get through these torments the consequences of judgment is through the grace of Jesus Christ alone. May God's people know and have that grace and, and champion that grace. Now flip back quickly into the book of Galatians. For both the Old and the New Testament have made it very clear, God has spoken. In the light of God having spoken, we must rely on that revelation for life and godliness, both Old and New Testament. So Paul writing to the church of Galatia in the context of our study, 
It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and forever. God's people said, amen. The worship in heaven must be reflected by the worship on earth. If we believe this is a gospel by grace, if we believe the words of God in in Jesus Christ, if we believe that everything that He's revealed to us from the beginning of time to the culmination of time, if we believe all of that by grace, our faith is a living faith. John reminds us of that in his gospel, in him was life, and the light was the light, the life was the light of men. Then Paul's tone changes. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There's not another gospel. And even if an angelic being could come, and even if that angelic being pronounces or heralds another gospel, that angelic being is cursed. Thy word is settled in heaven. God has spoken. Beginning in verse 11, Paul goes through great pains to defend his apostolic ministry and the gospel that he preached to the churches of Galatia to make it very well known that his gospel did not come from men, but it came from Christ himself. It is the gospel of God in Jesus Christ to the glory of God forever. And all of Scripture testifies and heralds that very same thing. The book of Galatians is a polemic addressing these false teachers who'd come into the church at Galatia and were changing the gospel. How are they changing it? By adding to and taking away from it. That's why we started in, in Revelation. When did the people of God... God's chosen get into trouble when they added to or took away from that which is revealed to them from the mouth of God. When does the church today get in trouble? When we abandon sola scriptura as the norming norm without norms and look to some other source, adding and taking away to the things that God has revealed to us. Paul doesn't tell us everything about his theology of of Christology or even sola scriptura in this text. He is addressing a particular problem, and he's saying the difference between what I am telling you and what the false teachers are telling you is I am speaking the words of Christ, and they aren't. They're speaking the words of Christ and this and that and this and that, and when they add and this and that and this and that… They have diluted the words of Christ. You get, the, you get the concept, don't you? So Paul, as he defends this, 
spends a lengthy amount of time talking about that gospel and his role in that gospel. But no one should be confused that what Paul is fighting for is that it wasn't his gospel. These are the very words of Christ. And I'm speaking on his behalf. And he shuddered to think that he could add anything of any significance to the words of Christ. And he's warning them that when people do, it's not the same gospel. Go to John chapter 14. We looked at John chapter 14. I apologize. We looked at John chapter 14 last time we were together. And in John chapter 14, there's a, a verse in verse 10 that we looked at that says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. It's works. We said in this text at the communion table that it is clearly, explicitly declaring that Jesus is God. It is declaring eternal sonship. It is declaring that he and his Father are one. The people who heard knew exactly what he was saying. And this claim to fullness of deity meant that what he said and what he did was on the same level authoritatively as what God has spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament. As we look at this text, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the church age and the very foundation of that gospel that could only be rooted and grounded in one thing, the words of the Father through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, not added to, not taken away, not, not changed, not challenged, the Word of God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works. We could add our, the words that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. In fact, he says, I'm one and the same. And he follows in verse 15. By, by talking about viva fides, a living faith. If you really believe all of these things, it results in what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's exactly what God delivered to Moses, to his people in Deuteronomy. Exactly what God delivered to Paul. Exactly what God delivered through John. A living faith is not just the acknowledgement that Scripture is God-breathed. It is a living faith under all the implications of the realities that God has spoken. And you can't add to it and take it away. You simply need to be obedient. Where does this word come from? Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you a helper, with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, capital S. Now, now put this all together. J. 
Jesus says, the authority of my words come from God the Father. I have told you these things and, and the fullness of the authority of the Godhead. I am the Son of the living God. I am I'm God in the flesh. And the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of truth, will so impress that upon you that to turn away and add or take away from the Scripture would be unthinkable because of the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the deliverance of said truth. To change that has eternal consequences. The world can't know that truth because they don't know Him. But if you do know Him, and you do, for He dwells in you and will be with you, you will speak my truth. Verse 25, these things have I spoken to you. He's talking about His disciples now. This is the upper room discourse. He's gathered them together. He's pulling all of the loose ends together, reminding them of everything that had been done and said. He's giving them their marching orders, although it still didn't or wasn't a, a real reality that he would be leaving them. But he says, I, I'm not leaving you. A, a, another is, is coming. The Godhead will not depart from you. The truth will not depart from you. I, I'm gone, but the Spirit is here. And, and it gives us a picture of the triune God and communication of truth. So, disciples, I've spoken these things while I'm with you. And the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, listen to this, and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. When I'm gone, you may not remember everything I said, or you may not remember it correctly. <laughs> so I'm going to remind you of what I said by sending the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of God, to get the words right so they're not added to, so they're not taken away. So it remains preserved forever, the full authority of God speaking into His world. And that brings peace, not as the world gives. And let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. All throughout Scripture, we see in the Trinitarian involvement in all that is said and done. And here we see it in the Scripture. John reminds us in chapter 12, verse 16 of this same gospel that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had done. How did they remember? Well, they're just sharp guys. So they wrote down to the best of their ability that remembers. No, Jesus answers that in this text. They remembered because my Holy Spirit spoke in and through them. So they got it right. See, there's an inherent danger when we believe that we are qualified to speak for God. What we're qualified to do is hear this Trinitarian God say, this is my word. Do not depart from it. There are eternal consequences. And you say, well, I don't understand it all. 
I've given you my spirit. He will show you and teach you all things. He'll remind you of all things. He will open up your eyes so that you can see all things. And that Trinitarian involvement preserves the Word of God in spite of the fact that this goes back to being penned in the first century. I don't believe the church spends enough time talking about the preservation of His Word. God spoke And then through his spirit, he promised that that word would be preserved for eternity. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. It doesn't change. You can't add to it. You can't take it away. God said it. That settles it. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, it matters, but not in the context of truth. He hasn't asked for your opinion. He doesn't need your opinion. And he's assured that it's always true through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Continuity of Scripture rests in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes to teach and to guide and to truth. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit assures the ultimate credibility of the New Testament and reminds us that it is sufficient. That's all you need. God has spoken what you need and is right and necessary. The source of those words is God the Father. The declaration of those words is God the Son. The revelation of those words is God the Spirit. The messengers of that word were the men gathered in this upper room who would take that word through a lost and, to a lost and dying world with the fullness of the authority of that word. And then the Bible teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, They would entrust that word to the church, the household of God, the church of the living God, who would be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We have been given the truth by God the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, by and through the inspiration that came through His disciples, and we have been made the guardians of that truth. Not to add to it, not to take away from it not to change it, just to do it and to proclaim it and to herald it and to champion it for the glory of God alone. Paul says to the church at Ephesus that we have to guard ourselves. It's been to be tossed around by every, every wind of doctrine and, and every little thing that comes down the pike. We need to study ourselves. And, and how do we study it? We speak the Word. We trust the Word. And why do we speak and trust the Word? Because of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And even because of the apostles, because what they wrote was superintended by God, and we got exactly what God wanted us to have. And we must be the protectors of that, the foundation and the buttress, the pillars that uphold that church Excuse me, to hold that word in this church age for the glory of God. We're in a battle for truth. We're in the same battle that has been raging from Genesis chapter 2 and 3, right? God said, did he really say that? Yeah, he did. And he spoke clearly. And Jude reminds us, beloved... Glorious church, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. 
or once delivered to all. By whom? From God the Father, through Jesus Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, to the apostles who penned and recorded for us the truth of the New Testament Scriptures. And now for us to to contend and defend and champion and herald that truth. What truth? Only the truth that came from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I will give you peace. Peter, chapter 1, says it this way, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice born from heaven, for we were them on the holy mountain. Why, why, did, they, why, why did they believe that the glory of God descended upon, upon this beloved Son? Because they sought and they heard the words. Now watch what Peter does. We have, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. We saw it and we heard it, but what we have in our hands today and what we deliver to you is even more fully confirmed than our experience because it came from God the Father through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit to the apostles delivered to the saints once and for all. It is so relevant in our culture today that Peter is saying very clearly, your experience is not the determiner of truth. You can know truth at times through experience, but the foundation of that truth is not your experience. It is the Word. Why? Because the words came from my Father. They were spoken in the Son. They were delivered to the apostles, through the Holy Spirit, and given to the church once and for all. One world. How in the world did we get to the place where we're in today? We've talked historically about the inspiration of Scripture that is breathed out by God. We've talked about the inerrancy of Scripture. It is without error, and it's true because of all the things we've just explained to you. We've talked about the fact that it's infallible, not because the church declares it to be so, but because it's the very Word of God. It will not lead you astray talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. The psalm writer says it's perfect and trustworthy, and it's right, and it's radiant, and it's lightning, and sure, and it's all you need, according to Peter, for life and godliness. And we learn historically, and even in the context of Scripture, through the ministry of the Spirit, it is perspicuous. It is clear and understandable. It doesn't mean we all understand everything perfectly but it's clear, and listen carefully. The term sola scriptura is a cry of the Reformation and the challenge to the Roman church 
that had added tradition and magisterium to the word as equal and co-authorities. And the reformers said, no, the word is the norm of norms that has no norm. You can only get the gospel right if you return to the word and only the word. This was a salvation issue. It was a gospel issue. And they were fighting for the truth. I'm going to take a little extra time, maybe, maybe five minutes extra, okay? So we're going to go a little later. God in His grace has given me the voice to do that. I'm going to give you a real-life example. It's a brouhaha of some sorts in evangelicalism today over the unconditional conference held by Andy Stanley. Before you get angry with me, pay attention. The conference was to build up a love and support for the LGBTQ plus community and create a quiet, quieter middle space somewhere in the middle where we can help them become a part of the church still say true to the Word. You can imagine the response to that. Albert Moeller, Beek, Denny Burke, and numerous authors came out and made it very clear that bringing the LGBT community into the church and allowing, giving space for their lifestyle was the right thing to do. It was met with the notion that that's an abandonment of truth. You've changed the gospel. Andy Stanley fired back, I've never subscribed to that version of biblical Christianity. Well, that explains a lot to me. This is the same guy who unhitched the Old Testament from the New Testament. And it all comes down to he's reading the Scripture and adding caveats. Because when the Scripture was written, it was to a particular group of people in a particular place, and that means we have to interpret it in the context of today. I have greater faith that my God and Father, my Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit knew exactly what was going to happen today, and they took it into account when they gave us the book. And when you get bogged down, two of his speakers were gay men, married to other gay men, and this quiet middle space was to make room for them to present their case. But according to Andy, Stanley hinged on Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is there for the needs of the LGBT community. Jesus is compassionate toward them. Because Stanley addresses that in his church. He says, for some of you Christians, that's unsustainable. 
So you choose same-sex marriage, and I quote this, not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They choose to marry for the same reason many of us did, love, companionship, and family. And in the end, it's their decision. Our decision is to decide how we respond to their decision. He goes on to tell a bunch of stories that will break your heart about looking past real people with eternal needs, like those in the LGBT community. But he flips this whole truth to being an emotional kind of truth, which undermines true truth. The Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or greedy, or drunk. There has to be a deconstruction of that text to hold the position that they were championing. And Andy Stanley will say, well, I still hold to the position of one man and one woman. I still hold to the sanctity of marriage. But we have to make room for those who don't hold to that same thing. And that is an authority issue. That's a Scripture issue. And in essence, Andy Stanley is saying, God in His compassion will accept them because He's a big and loving God. When in fact, God who has spoken to the Father And the Son and the Holy Spirit through the apostles to the church says they're not part of the kingdom. It's unambiguous. Andy Stanley is changing the very nature of God. He would say no. I would say he's changing the gospel. Listen carefully. You can come to God just as you are, and He will accept you just as you are. Or you can come to God in your depravity, broken in sin, and be brought to life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a different gospel. It's a different gospel. Is He right to try and reach into that people group? I'm not saying He's wrong. But to lead them to believe that they can be included and maintain that lifestyle when God says you're excluded because of that lifestyle is an offense to sola scriptura and denies the call to repentance. Jesus did not come to meet your needs. He came to save you from your sin. People say, well, you're just making too big a deal out of homosexuality. No, God did that. Thank you. And for those of you who are are thinking that, he came to save you from your sin, gossip, you from your sin, uh, evil thoughts, he came to save you. It's not, it's not either or. It's not either or, it's the gospel. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert back in 2011, in my opinion, wrote a critical book about the mission of the church. The words speak into this whole matter today. In the end, the Great Commission taking the gospel to including that LGBT community and calling them to repentance. The mission of the church 
It's the Great Commission for two basic reasons. There is something worse than death, eternal life, and there's something better than human flourishing. Wide is the road that leads to destruction and to make room for those who God has not made room for, is not loving or caring or kind. You are You're the band leading them on the road to destruction. God forbid. See, sola scriptura isn't just a cry and a call. It's a viva fides. It's a living kind of faith. I know it in my own life. This Catholic kid from the other side of the tracks from a broken family on welfare. Got reached in my life and did a miracle. And it wasn't because the church was so kind to me. I happened to be seated in the church when God used the gospel to change my life because the gospel never changes. And I realized I'm in trouble. And I cried out to Jesus. That's the message that it's always been. From Revelation to Genesis to Deuteronomy, it's, it's always the message. Sola Scriptura. And it's a message that we must be the pillar and buttress too. Scripture teaches us in context that we don't follow cleverly divine, add to, take away, alter, contextualize the gospel God has spoken, and He is the God of the past, and He is the God of the present, and He is the God of the eternal future. And he took all of that into account when he gave this over and delivered it to the church, and we cannot change it. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God, and that is where it authority lies for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Sola Scriptura. You know there was another cry of the Reformation? Tota Scriptura. Not just Scripture alone, all of the Word of God points to the glory of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and no one has a right to change it. Toda Scriptura. The writer of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the saints, sharper than every two-edged sword piercing to the dividing or the division of the soul and spirit of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents the hearts. Paul, saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, says, so be careful. Leaders, be careful. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And the church, who's been given gifts of men and pastors and teachers, are the pillars and the buttress of that truth. And if it's true truth, must champion that truth whether it's accepted or received or not. 
So before I conclude, when we talk about sola scriptura, we have to be clear on what it is and what it isn't. There's a fear sometimes that even in our circles, and I've seen it firsthand, we have lip service to the authority of Scripture, but we add a lot of stuff to it. I remember the old fundamental days, right? It's a version of Scripture that you carried the length of your hair, whether male or female, whether you had a tie, whether the pulpit was wooden or this metal thing up here, whether or not I had a bottle of water here or not. <laughs> we all have to be careful that we contend for the faith given to all once, once. And it is that truth that sets you free. As we wrestle with that, this sola scriptura does not say, listen carefully to this. I think sometimes we get that wrong in our circles. It does not say or nullify church tradition. Why? Because if you are writing today or speaking, such as Andy Stanley, there's a history to Orthodox Christianity, a tradition in Orthodox Christianity that has always been the same from the beginning of time till today. And it was rooted in the Scripture. And when someone comes along today as one of their speakers opined in that conference and said, we've gotten it wrong for 2,000 years, here's what it really means. Church tradition matters. We have this terrible I have to be really careful. I get fired up here. Well, my truth. Are you kidding me? Did you hear anything I said? Your truth? We have a lengthy history, and everyone was saying the same thing. And all of a sudden, we're the biggest and the brightest, and we're going to change that. Be careful. This is holy ground. Why? Because it came from the mouth of God through the Son by means of the Spirit and trusted to the apostles, recorded for the saints. And it is the only norming norm without norm for the gospel and everything else that pertains to faith. Be careful. Be guarded. Be cautious. It doesn't nullify but clarifies church tradition. Church tradition is not on the same plane. So we take the Scripture and we reflect upon that tradition, and if there's reformation necessary, we reform. But if for 2,000 years everyone who has studied the Scriptures has come to the same conclusion and you haven't, I suggest it's probably you that's a problem. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean there's only one authority it's in the Scriptures, because God has appointed authorities in the Scripture, hasn't He? Obey those that have the rule over you. The husband is the head of the wife. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Don't bring an accusation against an elder. There are authorities in your life. Scripture doesn't erase those authorities, but when it does, We emphasize the autonomy of an individual believer, and the only thing we have left is private interpretations and subjective conclusions. Listen carefully. 
All that you need for faith and godliness has been delivered once for the saints, and through the ministry of the Spirit, it is clear in the matters that it needs to be clear in. And when it comes to salvation, it is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And as we wrestle with that, we understand that even in our applications, we have a tendency to raise those up to the role of authority. We say, well, what is the text saying to me? Nothing. The text was spoken in a historic context, and it must be understood in that context. Its application may speak to you, but God is not giving every one of us the individual right to interpret the way we want it to. There are some first order things. And the gospel is a first order thing that calls us to repentance. And when one of the biggest celebrity names in evangelicalism starts to change the course, the church must rise up and say, no, it's never been that way. This is another gospel. Aside from the good that he was trying to bring, it is a departure from Sola Scriptura, and I finish with this, 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent and to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in these manners. Peter is acknowledging that the Paul had received the gospel from Christ and was speaking in the fullness of authority on behalf of Christ. There are some things in them hard to understand. Not all clear. Here's one that is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you want the interpretation, see me afterwards, but it's perspicuous, isn't it? Neither is there salvation in any other. I shouldn't have to help you with that. But there's some hard things to understand, and there's room for disagreement. But be warned that the ignorant and unstable will twist those hard-to-understand things to their own destruction, revelation, just as other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, to care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever to the day of eternity. I've been asked the question in this series of messages so far. Well, it's a lot of deep theology, Pastor. What's the application? I don't have to give you the application, <laughs> but I will. Paul gave it to us to understand Galatians 1, verses 3 through 5, to understand that grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to him be glory forever and ever. 
right theology changes the way you worship. Changes the way you worship. I'm trying to compel you (laughs) to understand how glorious it is that Jesus reached into your life and rescued you from your sin according to the Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. That's why Paul is so strong in his language here. There is only one gospel. It is the very words of the Father delivered through the Son, reminded by the Spirit, written by the apostles and defended by the church of the living God. May that be so at First Baptist Church in Johnson City. For wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate and few there be that find it. You cannot find it outside of the Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. And like Martin Luther, here I stand. Here I stand. Give us strength, Father. The times are troubling and the way is perilous. And we become bigger than God. How dare us. When we fight the battles of life, when we fight them on the perspicuity of Scripture, not the emotions or the experiences of life. Protects us when the wind blows and the seas rage, and they are and they will. May we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. May it resound to your glory, but even more so, Lord, may it change the way we see you may change how we worship, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I apologize for being over.